So we have asked some of the deepest questions of Christian life over the last six weeks. How do I find meaning in life? Can I know there is a God? Why does He allow pain and suffering? Is Jesus God? And is Christianity too narrow, too exclusive? Now I know that since we've gone through these questions, they are all satisfactorily answered for you now, and you will never ask these questions again, right? Right. All the questions about God really do come down to this. All the questions about suffering, love, life, come down to, can I know God personally? Can we? Can I experience Him in a way that can be legitimately described as a relationship? You know, if I'm going to be honest with you this morning. If God were the watchmaker type, if He set the world ticking but remained distant from it, from it Himself, if this were the case, I'd rather not know He exists. And I don't know why anyone would wish to know. To know there's a God, yet not to be able to know Him and feel as if you're known by Him. To know He exists, but to suffer and not know whether He cares. This sounds torturous to me. It makes no sense that God would make human beings to long for such a relationship with Him, yet not be open to it Himself. So this is what I want to know, what I believe we all want to know. Can I know Him? Does He hear me? And most importantly, does He love me? Simone Weil, Weil, I believe is the pronunciation, was a French writer. In the 1920s and 30s, she was an agnostic in her faith. But she wrote about a season of life when she was suffering from these intense headaches. And she began meditating on a poem written by a pastor, George, George Herbert, entitled Love. And she would recite this poem over and over again just as a way of clinging to some hope in her pain. And during one of these moments, she realized that even doing this was a sort of prayer. She was reciting it over and over in a way, this rhythm that became a kind of prayer. And she says in this moment, Christ himself came down and took possession of me. In my arguments about the unsolvable problem of God, she says, I had never foreseen the possibility of that, of a real contact, person to person, here below, between a human being and God. This is what we're asking about this morning. This is what humans long for, this type of intimacy with God Himself. And it's the kind of intimacy that we ask ourselves in the darkest moments when it feels as if our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. Is this possible? God, are you really listening? And to start with in trying to answer this question, we need some concept of what we even mean by the name. Who is God? In the same way that we might ask, who is Stephanie or who is Stuart, humanity across time and place has been driven on this perpetual quest to answer the question, who is God? And surprisingly, across history and geography, even across religious uh, bounds, this question has actually been answered in consistent ways. Now, hear me, 
there are faiths with many gods, of course, gods plural, but most faiths most faith at some level originate with a single creator, a capital G God, whom they describe as the infinite fullness of being, omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient, from whom all things come and upon whom all things depend for every moment of their existence, without whom nothing at all could exist. This is exactly the way the Bible reveals God. As the one who stands outside of time and history, who made the world and everything in it. But here's what's strange. Because God's presence fills all things, because we believe that the creation is, in a sense, an emanation of God, it grows out of God, it is impossible that God can relate to His creation at a distance. It's impossible. The notion of a distant, uninterested God is bogus. This is why Paul, who was a devout Jew who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, is able to quote a pagan when he speaks of God's nearness. God actually isn't far from each of us, Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. God's imminence, which, by which we mean His nearness, is an essential part of who He is. In His majesty, He pervades all His creation. So there is a sense in which it's impossible for God to be absent. It's against His very nature. And this is exactly what the writer of Psalm 139 is getting at as he tries to imagine himself attempting an escape from God. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Even if I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me will be night. But even then, the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Augustine was this early church father who in his early life was a notorious sinner. And in his spiritual autobiography titled The Confessions, he reflects on his early life of wandering from God, trying to escape God. And he realizes that God was with him even in that time. And he speaks of God's nearness as something very mystical but real. He says, you were more inward to me than my most inward part. And higher than my highest. This is the sort of mystery we're dealing with when we set out to know God. It is greater mystery than setting out to know another person. A spouse. And we all know how full of mysteries all of us can be. God is higher than we can imagine, but He is also more imminent, closer to us than we are to our very selves. So the question becomes, how do we know God's nearness? Can we? And this is where Christianity parts ways with other faith traditions. I want to show you a few ways that you know and receive 
the nearness of God in your life. Now, most importantly, you receive God's nearness through His mercy. This is His generous love. Now, God is the essence of beauty and goodness. The Bible has this catch-all term to describe God and all His unique wonder and perfection. And this catch-all word is holiness. As much as God is incapable of being absent, He's also incapable of committing evil, incapable of ugliness of any kind. God is the embodiment of truth and of love. But we all know that this isn't the case with us. As one author put it, to know oneself is above all to know what one lacks. It's to measure oneself against the truth, against ultimate goodness and love, and to come up short. Have you ever had the experience of being around someone whom you know is just better than you? Have you ever experienced this? They're a better person. They're a better parent. They're a better athlete. They're smarter. They're better at the work that you both do. Or they're just more attractive. In one way or another, they're just better than you. Being around them is, in a way, like being exposed as lesser, as lacking in something. It's frustrating and it's humiliating on one level. Being near to God is like this, but it's multiplied by infinity. It's impossible that we can experience God's nearness and not at the same time experience at least some subconscious awareness of what's lacking in us. That we come up short over and over. Most of us, if we're truthful, we hate this about ourselves. We hate that we come up so short. We learn to live with our failures, of course. We have to. We might even have a special affection for our own failures simply because they're ours. It's like that family member that they're crazy, but they're family, right? We still don't like these things about ourselves, which means we don't completely like ourselves. And this makes it impossible for us to imagine how ever completely and utterly love us. How could God embrace us without turning up his nose just a little bit as he does it? God's goodness is on the level of being terrifying, thoroughly humiliating, unless unless God does something to remove our fear. There's only one way we can go know God's nearness and not be afraid of it. That is, if his nearness is a presence of mercy and of generous love. If God comes to us with anything less than this, we will be ruined, and we need to know this. If we receive his presence as anything less than abundant love and mercy, we will experience a taste of hell, because hell is a place where God's holy love has not been received as mercy. Unable to completely escape God, those in hell experience His holiness as punishment, as terror. 
This is worlds away from God's desire. God bridged heaven and earth so that we would know his presence as a presence of love. His nearness is a nearness of forgiveness for our darkest hours. And his embrace is the light that casts out the darkness in us. And we will never know freedom. We will never know a fullness of life unless we receive God's embrace for what it is. This is the foundation for knowing God. We cannot start anywhere else. His presence is a presence of mercy, of generous love. The meaning of your life is centered, and it must be centered on your redemption in Christ. He is the presence of God's mercy. As we're going to pray later in the Eucharistic meal, Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross and offered himself a perfect sacrifice for you, for the whole world, so that God might embrace you and the world in his mercy. So do you believe this? That God is near to you and his nearness is a nearness of mercy, of generous love. Are you receiving the light of God's presence in such a way that it can expose and heal the darkness that's inside of you? The ways that you come up short. And like any relationship, you must know that this relationship with God, with His nearness, this is not a one-off event where you receive Jesus as your Savior and then you go on with life. No, this is a life of continually experiencing God's embrace. God is the lover who continually desires his beloved, who never grows weary of her. This is what God wants for you, that you would receive his love in all its fullness and that it would then spill over into all of your life. Like the couple that never falls out of love, whose love is renewed over and over again through all the decades of marriage, and it creates this happiness beyond them. God's mercy is to be the foundation for your life on which a house of love grows up. Don't you want to believe this in the deepest parts of your being? That God embraces you, and He loves you, That this is the meaning of your life, his redemption, his kindness. So this is where we start. To know God's nearness is to know his mercy, his generous love. But within God's embrace is also a calling. A calling to become who we are as God's beloved. So God says to us in our weakness and in the places where we come up short, he says, it's okay, but I refuse to leave you this way. I refuse to let you be less than we are. And this is not a voice of consternation, as God says this, a voice of displeasure. It's still the voice of love saying this. I refuse to let you continue on this way. I'm going to take you somewhere. I want you to go with me. So here's a second way that we know the nearness of God, and it's through obedience. We've become accustomed in our culture to talking about gifts with strings attached. 
we don't really see these things as gifts. And sometimes rightly so. Sometimes one person gives a gift, but what, what they really have in mind is some kind of exchange. The gift becomes this underhanded weapon to get something that they want in return. But it is also true that the best gifts of life come with obligation. They come in the context of deep relationship, profound love. So when I gave Katie a wedding ring, she knew there were obligations to receiving it, to saying yes. We had talked about these obligations, a lot of them ahead of time. But for some reason, she still saw the ring as a gift. In fact, one of the greatest tragedies in a marriage or any close relationship is when one person begins to expect nothing of the other. They free the other from any strings, any ties, any claims or expectations. There is this myth in our culture that this is what true love does. It's completely It makes no obligations on another. But this is exactly that. It is a myth. No true lover can be indifferent to the response of it. True love always makes claims. And so... God makes claims on us. He insists on our obedience, our submission to His way as the true way, the way. Anyone who's been in a friendship or a marriage knows that we must submit to each other every now and then, even to just know each other and to understand. If we always insist on our own way, it becomes impossible for us to know and the depths of another person. And to an even greater degree, to know God, we must relinquish our will to His. In some scenarios, we won't even understand why we must do this until later. But we know this, that intimacy is built through surrender. Surrender to another. And at the same time, broken relationships often occur when we buffer ourselves against another and refuse to submit to the will of another. So there is a question here. Are you obeying God? Are you submitting your will to His even when it might not make sense to you? He's given you His mercy, embraced you with His love, so you can trust Him that when you surrender your will to His, His love is going to hold you. In fact, picture it this way. Disobedience to God is like trying to get away from Him while He's trying to embrace you. Obedience is surrendering to His arms and trusting that He's going to hold you. So we know God through His mercy, generous, generous, generous love. Him through obedience, this surrender to His will. But there is this other way to know God that could be the most palpable manifestation of His mercy. An expression of our obedience. You see, this is the fruit of His mercies among us and our obedience. We will know God through the beloved community. 
to the beloved community. It's in the community that God's mercy and our obedience become concrete realities. God has embraced us, so we in turn embrace each other. And when we refuse to do this, not only do we reject each other, we reject God as well. Our love for each other is always tied to our love for Him. Now listen to James speaking to a divided community in uh, his letter, James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? A lack of surrender to God in this community has spilled over into a fight within the church itself. Now, wouldn't it be nice if this were only an isolated occurrence? It happened in that church, but it doesn't happen to churches now. But that's not true. The beloved community is to be the place where God's mercy is affirmed to you and the burden of obedience is lightened. But to be this kind of place, we have a battle to fight on two fronts. And so this is where we'll close. To become the beloved community, we must fight a battle within and a battle without. There's the sin within us that we have to fight against to be a part of the beloved community. The inclinations in us to resist the community and to resent the community for not being what we want it to be. The inclinations we all face towards selfishness and pride. The community presents us with ourselves and our, all our weaknesses and our discontentment, our desire to control each other. Why can't they just get their act together? Why can't they just take my advice and do what I've asked them to do? The, the community calls us to do battle with ourselves in these ways. Why can't they believe what I want them to believe? This is the battle within sometimes. But there also is the battle without. Where there's real failure from others. Where there's legitimate sin and disappointment. There's sin from others that angers us. But the only real way to maintain the community and the bond of love is to cover the sin in love. To embrace each other as God has embraced us and call each other to believe what God says about us, which is that we are all his beloved, that we are all loved by him. So as Church of the Lamb, we are part of God's beloved community. This is a place he has called us to live in his love so that his love might be perfected among us. See, God's love can remain in the abstract when we just talk about it. But when we live it together, then it becomes perfected among us. So are we doing this? Are you? And it does start with you receiving God's love in your own life. For you to be able to tell someone else that they are the beloved, you have to be capable of saying that about yourself. I'm the beloved. And that means they are too. Are you surrendering to God's will and obedience? And are you surrendering to the beloved community, this place that lives out His mercies 
in obedience. And if you're not, you do need to hear God's warning today because these passages such as 1 John and James end in warnings that if you don't love a member of God's family, then neither can you love him. We need to find a way to deal with this. Because when we don't, we, we block our ability to receive God's love in our own lives. So, are you receiving God's love? Are you surrendering it to him? Are you allowing God's love to become manifest in this community that he has called you to? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for being near to us in your love, for embracing us with your mercy, for drawing us close to you through obedience, and for giving us the community of love, this place where your love abides, where we experience your love in concrete ways. Would you let your love grow up here? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.